Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Train Pop Culture. Uh, hosting today is myself, Strong, and with me, as always, Johnson, the one and only, uh, Strong again, the big dog. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, it's like the sequel you never ask for, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Kimbo, yeah, the gift. That was like Highlander 2. Oh, that thing can just get in the fucking sea. <laughs> well, let's get started. Uh, today's episode, uh, we hope you've all enjoyed the Getting to Know You series, but we're going to move away from that now and start delving into other territory. And why not start with something that's going to last us weeks and weeks and weeks? Um, <laughs> it was my choice, and we're going to be looking at the wonderful world of movie remakes. Should they exist? Are some of them better? Why? All of those big important questions. And we'll start with just a general conversation about the world of remakes before we move into something a bit more specific. Um, where do you all stand, guys, with remakes? I mean, as a general rule, have you enjoyed them? Are there films that you have watched and then found out it was a remake and then gone back and revisited the original? What does it for you? Because in terms of, like, for me, I think the the sign of a good remake is that it delivers something original or different that mm. re-engages an audience with a story that they might have either never have heard of before or didn't quite get what they wanted the first time round. Prime examples of this are like um, The Thing. Most people think that John Carpenter's The Thing is an original movie and it's far from it. It's a fucking extraordinary remake. It's arguably better than the original film. That is the sign of an excellent remake, something that deserved to be made and should definitely exist. Not all remakes have the same mm. sort of or gravitas where do you all stand guys i'm with you it, it for me remakes have to remake not just replay for me it, there has to be something about it that you've you've done differently you've taken the idea and run in a different direction or you've got you know added more to it you know like you've like fleshed out several characters or whatever it, the, or you've just taken the the idea so for instance like with the magnificent seven you took the idea of seven samurai and you've taken the basic roots which is seven mercenaries are hired in order to save a village from being attacked by bandits now in seven samurai obviously feudal japan and they get ronin in the um Magnificent Seven, they get hired guns to stop against bandits. So there's, so set, uh, the Magnificent Seven is an example of one that needed to be done, or at least it's a good example of a good one because it, it brought something very different to it. It sort of re it remade it rather than just sort of copied it. You know, there are a lot of bad remakes out there because they either try and basically do the same again just with fancier graphics or they haven't really watched the source material or dealt with the source material enough and it 
fails because they clearly didn't know what they were doing. But yeah, I'm more on the side of there has to be something about it to about it that's different or new or expanded on or whatever. You know, otherwise it's just well, why have you made this? Before I answer uh, Strawn female's question, I would like to pose a question to you, Johnson. Mm-hmm. As a fellow video game aficionado, why mm-hmm. is it okay for video games to remake games just for better graphics, but it's not okay for films to do the same thing? Because shut up, that's why. No, um, it, because I think mainly because. I think with with games and films deliver something very different for me. Uh, games are your part of it more than you are for me with a film. A, a film you're you're sat watching, you, you get engrossed in it, but you know you're not part of it. Where unlike a game, literally nothing in that game can happen unless you exist. A film will happen regardless. You know, you put it on and you die. The film plays to the end regardless. With a game, nothing happens unless you input. So I think your interaction brings part of it. And if you update the graphics, it it can bring it uh, to a new audience. On but with films, what you've got to do is remake the entire film again. And you can't have the same actors. So the same grav, you know, the same ethos that's in it won't be there. The same energy won't be there. It, it's just completely you know it's it's different just with updated graphics you know well why did you need to to do this the original was all right plus you can watch old films on en- on new systems they bring them out on thing whereas you can't play games on new systems i think that half the time they update it just to sell it to you again on a, a new system so you can play it but but yeah in answer to you, your question really it's it, it shut up i'm a hypocrite I'm glad that you were aware of how that sounded, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I couldn't, I realised as I was going, I couldn't defend it properly because I was just like, every argument I used for games, you go, well, oh, well, you're bringing it to a new system, you're bringing it to, and I was like, yeah, well, that's different because I say so. I realised I, I don't have an argument. I, I suppose it's just, I know I am a massive film snob. So remaking an old film just with, like, in colour or better graphics or whether, for me, it's like, piss off the old one was better and i think i'm just a snob so yeah i realize my hypocrisy on this one i think though to a degree as somebody that i'm not a massive gamer but i feel that as times evolve and technology improves the overall experience with interacting with that game gets exponentially better the more immersive the universe that you're playing in gets and if the graphics improve if the story is solid in a game, the story is going to stay solid. If you yeah. can make it look how you wanted it to look and it enhances the experience, that's fantastic. There's there's a very, very large grey area with adapting things for cinema because it's such a almost passive experience. You're just casually observing something. It should grab you and you should be like, completely immersed and involved but it's it's sort of a a different immersive experience potentially that i didn't see any benefit from the shot for shot remake of psycho i think that that mm-hmm. film has beautifully i think the original hitchcock film 
um, in all its black and white glory, was it was moodier and more atmospheric. Originally, colorizing it, I don't think enhanced the story at all. Um, but that is a very objective opinion. There's going to be people that really enjoyed that remake. And then again, you've got to think like technology advanced and improved. And it's the the first example that I used, but it's definitely one definitely going back to the thing, the kind of the, the special effects that were available to Carpenter at the time that he made the thing made the original film's graphics look laughable. And I think mm -hmm. there's certain movies where there's that element of fantasy or surrealism or graphic horror or sci-fi that haven't necessarily aged well. And the stories are great, but you watch them back now, the older or original films, and they're not aging very well. The story's still fucking solid, but you, know, you can see the little claymation, stop motion, Harryhausen sequences and as beautiful as they are and as a wonderful snapshot of cinema at that period they are we live in a very modern world where people have the attention span of goldfishes with ADHD and we want everything to be beautiful and immersive and detailed and you know you want to be able to basically smell the CGI grass and I think in a modern world you know updating certain things works you've just got to be very careful about how you do it i think if you update the graphics on a really good game you're making a really good game look better look up to date and you're not really fucking with something fundamental mm. it's not as clean a transfer when you start updating a film because a lot of what made that film work yes yeah, sometimes it'll be this exact same thing but something's lost in the fact that the actor isn't the same. It's the way they enunciated certain words or the way they raised an eyebrow. It's their, it was their interpretation of the role that gets lost in translation when you remake it because you can't recapture something that was captured in a hot minute or like a handful of takes and they found the perfect take. I think there's a little bit of alchemy with cinema. Mm, that's exactly what I was saying there. You know, it's it's... You're not going to, because it's different actors and, and different directors and whatever. It, like you, like we were both saying, it's there's just something fundamental about it that's not going to be quite the same. And just because it's got pretty shininess doesn't doesn't fill the void that that passion or that take or that thing its whole is going to leave. I think so. Yeah, I think we're both agreed on that one. It's just you were a lot more eloquent than me. I try. I'm going to answer my own question now. By answering Natalie's question, because the answers are the same. My opinions on remakes in all art forms are it is fine as long as you are improving or adding or sufficient time has passed that the old one is now largely forgotten by the majority. So a remake would bring the old one back into public attention. Um... I don't have good film examples of this because I don't live in film. Uh, but for like a video game example, uh, they remake they remake Pokemon every so often. Uh, they remade Pokemon Soul Silver, which was fine because sufficient time had passed. But then on top, they added so it became the premium ultimate version of the game rather than 
oh, okay, we've got Silver on a new console. Johnson. Yeah, just an example for the film would be there's been a new Magnificent Seven in the last five years, and Chris Pratt was in it and a, a few others. And I remember getting sort of riled up about that, but that's, again, film snobbery. But well, I, I was sort of, someone did point it out to me saying what you basically said, there's been enough time passed that a remake will bring the original into focus again because people will watch this and then, They'll go out and of course they'll say, Oh, it's based on a based on this one. And they'll go watch the original one again. And then they'll see that one and go, Oh, it's based on a Japanese foot and so on. So yeah, I see where you're going with that. I was just giving you an example there. This is where I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. Um if a studio remakes a film, just retain the rights. I'm dead against that sort of thing. Because they're usually like a cash grab, it's a bag of shit, and it's awful. In a music sense, however, if a band re-records a song to regain the rights, I'm all for. If they record a song just to re-record it and it comes out sounding wank, dead against it. It's just one of those things that really bothers me. On the film front, I love it if it adds something to it. A prime example for me is Rob Zombie's first Halloween film. He did a very good example of doing sort of Michael Myers, The Missing Years. And it went through stuff like him growing up as a, into, like being admitted into the asylum and stuff like that. Great example. Gave us something added to the story that we didn't have before. Second one wasn't so great, but that wasn't a remake so much. It was just more of a sequel continuation from what he'd done before. Uh, yeah. Just like throwing the little music point, point there. On the... Uh... On the um, point you made about retaining rights, um, I'd just like to say, fuck you, Fox, or Fantastic Four, or Fan Four Stick. I have nothing further to add. Seconded. I think everybody in that universe says, fuck you, on that, on that score. I think it's a bit unnecessary. Just, just let, it, let it go. Go full frozen, let it go. Stop, stop doing the thing. Stop it, Fox. Stop it. Um, I mean, in terms of then it's like there's there's great examples of good remakes, there's shocking examples of why you shouldn't do it. For example, for me, like the very good examples of why you don't do a thing because you're not gonna do it well, like the fog. This is the fog remake. Um, the original Fog film is fucking glorious. It's a very good film. It's very moody, very nuanced, very interesting. I have re- I've tried to watch the Fog remake, which I believe had the guy that was in um, Smallville, played Clark Kent, I think, if I remember rightly. This is some time ago. Um, I've tried to watch yeah, the film. Yeah, Tom Welling. That's the badger. Um, I've tried to watch that film three times. Three times I tried to watch that film. And I think the most I've ever got through is a third of the way and then have to literally rage quit because it's just offensively fucking stupid. It's just another generic teen mm. horror. Like, you know, where they, they, they got to, a, I feel like at some point, people in Hollywood went, do you know what will put butts on seats? Sexy teenage people getting chased by something scary. 
and just kept knocking out rehashed versions of films that were really solid but not treating them with the respect that they deserved and I think there's where you have a problem I mean this whole thing did spin off um the the Scream franchise which was glorious I'm totally down with that because it was kind of um an observation of cinema at the time and it had something to say and it added to it but there was this whole wave of cinema where it was just sexy late teen early 20s people something desperately terrifying and frightening tried to kill them and that was basically it it was just control paste control paste and mm. they were taking very interesting source material and stripping all of the brain cells out of the the original film and just filling it with tits and dick and that, that was basically it like why why do that why why did you break my film like i really <laughs> And then it, it got from a point of where they were just kind of, they were remaking it clearly to get like sexy money through the cinema doors. And then there's like unnecessary remakes that people don't even know exist. For example, did you know that Dirty Dancing has been remade? Not a sequel, but basically a shot for shot remake. And it has Grace from Will and Grace as baby's mother. And again, I think I got a quarter of the way through and went, this isn't right. It just doesn't have the same energy and I don't understand how you can lose that energy when you're basically remaking that film entirely from scratch so I think there's a lot to be said for excellent remakes you do get something more from and you can't always pinpoint what it is but a bad remake you're either there going this has no soul or this has no substance and mm. either way I feel like you're taking something that was pretty fucking decent and, and ruining it for people because people will watch the remake and then just assume that the original was bad. And that's where you get into very dangerous territory with remakes. There seems to be a lot of desire to make something that's safe. There's not been, a, for a prolonged period in kind of my movie going history like I'm in my mid-30s now been in cinema for you know going to cinema since I was in my early teens there were years that would pass and you were like oh this is very interesting this is a very new concept this is very cool and then you're starting to see things that just looked like carbon copies of themselves and you knew that you knew the title but you couldn't remember why and then you'd be like oh this is a remake but this one was shit I'm not going to watch the original one. And I, I think if you're going to either cash grab because it's a safe thing to remake something that already exists, that's already done well in some way, maybe not in the kind of money terms that, you know, the people that are making these films are looking for, like in, in its original context, it did quite well. But like, don't, don't just do it to make a thing don't just do it to try and make money and don't just do it to try and be cool like if you've not got something new to bring to the story or you're not trying to deliver a little bit of fan service to the original story or reintroduce it in a innovative way then why are you doing it like why it's a lot of effort being put into destroying a perfectly good piece of art. Yeah, uh, I was going on sometimes with remakes, what they're trying to do, uh, like, well, like you gave the example of 
the fog is they are trying to bring it to a, a, a new audience, not as in new generation, but a new audience. For instance, uh, what you got me thinking while you were doing that was the RoboCop remake. Uh, RoboCop originally, eight, it was an 18, and it was balls to the wall, you know, violence, and and that's what we that's what was brilliant about it was because you could have adult themes throughout it, and they thought, oh, let's remake it, but let's make it PG thirteen, uh, well for American viewers, you know, twelve A for us, and let's uh, you know bring it to a a different audience, and it's just like, well, no, you've met and what you've done there is missed the point of the film. Not everything has to be for everyone. You know, and sometimes they remake films because they think, oh, let's try and get a wider audience. You know, this was a bit this was a bit niche. So let's make it for everyone. You know, it may and forgetting completely that the reason it made a ton of money is because the audience that it was aimed at saw it in droves, knowing that it was aimed at them. They didn't, you know, like with robocop that was everyone went to see that because it was this awesome robotic cop who shot the shit out of people and was like yeah this is bloody as hell this is brilliant and it had a really good sto- you know story going behind it it and a lot of the people went to see it because of that aspect they didn't so they didn't go because they thought oh this is you know oh this is a fun thing they went yes i'm watching this because of this reason so you open it up to a wider audience and suddenly you lose a lot of the heart because you're like well you know what why is he why is he doing why is he doing that he should you know take out his gun and just blow his head off come on but of course he doesn't do that and yeah so sometimes they try and bring it to a wider audience or a different audience or take it out of that sort of cult or niche thing and strangely it fails horribly because the reason it was successful was because it was niche sorry Kimbo, ranted a bit there it's okay i just brought my segue along and we're gonna ride out of this niche territory get back to the masses coming back to the masses hi masses we're back i think we should talk about our favorite remakes our least favorite remakes and films that Kimbo literally just Googled and found out it was a remake whilst we were on this episode. Researching on the fly. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. So, conveniently, I found one list on Collider.com, trusted, reputable source, which has ranked the 30 best movie remakes of all time. Turns out I've seen three of them, exactly. Great. Uh, Magnificent Seven probably the best remake I've ever seen, which is quite depressing because the rest of them were really bad. Um, and I'm not talking the, the old one that Johnson was talking about. I'm talking like the Chris Pratt one. That That is that is my Magnificent Seven. The one I've literally has just found out it's a remake in the last 10 minutes. Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. I never knew that was a remake. That film's my childhood. I love that cat. I love that film. Chance. Chance. Your little face just lit up. It was so adorable. I could shit. I was reading this list and it's like horror film, I don't care. Horror film, I don't care. Horror film, I don't care. Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. Hello. So I read, and apparently it's a remake of a 1960s animal endangerment film from Disney. Now, with Disney, 
were they endangering the animals? Is that why it's called an animal endangerment film? <laughs> they, or... they do make a sassy comment underneath saying a company well versed in endangering animals, both animated and live action. Right. In the original, the spunky cat and dog team were actually pitted against the bear, effectively ramping up the animal endangerment. <laughs> but yeah, that's a remake. Apparently, I'm really, ex- I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I had a point to make on this whole, whole episode. Hey. Um, and then my least favorite remake, and I'll end on my negative because everyone else is very negative about remakes. The Mummy, the 2018 or 19 version of the Mummy with Tom Cruise. Why? Why? I have nothing further. The yeah. only positive, the only positive about the whole film is the woman who plays the mummy is an incredibly attractive lady. The rest of it is all awful horseshit. And in fact, that isn't even a saving grace because they put her in that much makeup and CGI. She isn't even that attractive in this film. So <laughs> you've ruined the one plus point you had. I'm taking it away. <clears throat> yeah, that film was such a hot mess because. Even the story was confused about what story they were telling because they opened with saying, oh, this woman was going to be um, the pharaoh and then it was, you know, it was going to be the next one. But then the pharaoh had a boy child. So that was going to be the next one. So she did a deal with the devil. Uh, well, not the devil, you know, an evil uh, one of their evil gods. And then and then as they're telling that story, they then changed the story and said, so she then killed the pharaoh in order to take revenge against humanity so hang on where did that you were angry that your husband that your partner had a boy child not because everyone else wrong and that was that was in the first feckin 10 minutes you already confused the story within the first 10 minutes and then they shot to a load of knights burying something in the middle ages you know like Oh, okay, so we're going to the Middle Ages then. No, they then cut and show Tom Cruise in the modern day shooting thing. Oh, hang on. It was such... Yeah, I'm with you on that. It was such a hot mess. They had no idea what they were doing. And it was basically watch Tom Cruise run. Now, what films like that? Oh, wait, all of his. The point I like to make whenever anyone mentions the most recent version of The Mummy is uh, Russell Crowe's excellent, excellent adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, which was the most shoehorned appearance of a character in any film I've ever seen ever. And I watch comic book movies, they shoehorn in appearances left, right, and center. Russell Crowe is literally crowbarred into this film. It's like, we could, we could get, we, could, we do need a professor for one scene. Let's make him Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and let's make that scene five scenes. Also, please stop casting Russell Crowe in films. He can't act anymore. <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, there's a line in that film that actively made me burst out laughing. It's not meant to be funny. It just made me burst out laughing is when Russell Crowe's character, Dr. Jekyll, turns to um, Tom Cruise's character, who is older than him in real life, and said, you're, you're a younger man. You'll know about this. It's like, no, Jesus Christ, stop stoking that man's ego. Everyone, I burst out laughing. I was like, what? He's several years older than you. Fuck's sake, yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm now just ranting about a film now. I'm, I'm going to stop. Next. 
so in terms of Kimbo's questions, what would your favourite remake, least favourite, like the, the remake that sucked super hard for you and one that surprised you that you didn't originally know it was a remake be? Well, I'll go with my um, least favourite remake is going to be uh, the uh, version of Psycho with um, Vince Vaughn because it is literally a shot-for-shot remake as it dialogue, shots, composure, cinematography, everything is identical apart from the actors and director. That just didn't need to happen. It was so lackluster as well. What was weird is you copied the film original exactly and still put out a shit film. I don't, that's actually impressive. The first one is, you know, the original is brilliant and you copy it identically and it's shit. That is a trick. Do you know what I think it was for the Psycho Shot for Shot remake? I think you lose a lot of the mood and atmosphere with it being in full colour. Mm. I think there's something about the black and white film that gave it weight and made it more sinister. Like the shadows cast on... Um... Fuck, I've forgotten his name. What's the main character called? Uh, you're thinking of Norman Bates? Norman Bates, motherfucker, had a brain <laughs> father. Sorry, people at home, you could hear the cogs going there. Uh, yeah, like the, the shadows cast on Norman Bates's face in the mother elements. You know, he's all dressed up and there's the wing and he's turning around, the light bulb swinging and whatnot. Something very, almost like graphic novel about those shots in that film. Because it's all just light and dark and then these greys in between and it just feels murky and dark and quite sinister and it's very hard to feel like anything about the shot for shot remake of psycho being sinister when it's all pastels it just felt very soft the whole way through and i think you, you lose some of the gravity there's no weight to it because it's just soft colored america yeah. it's an inoffensive yeah. looking cliche old cinema colour America and that you, you lose some of the some of the venom and the the hits that that film has to deliver you, you lose that kind of intensity I think I think that was what did that one for me I mean in terms of like the ones that suck the most for me I'd have to say The Fog I, I have still not watched that film I've tried three times that is how such a remake that film is. I have yet to finish watching it. I've just given up. I'm not going to bother. I'm not wasting my time. You shat on a perfectly good film. Fuck you. Fuck you, guy who remade The Fog. You ruined it. <laughs> like, this is like a, they're hanging out on a boat at some point, having a party on a boat. And I'm just like, nope, no, this is where I hit stop. I'm going to go have a cigarette, drink a beer, yell at the wall for a bit and go to bed. I'm not, not watching. I'm not partying. <laughs> Get in the sea. Favourite remake for me, um, and it's not going to surprise anybody, probably, um, it, don't get me wrong, Tim Curry's Pennywise was extraordinary. But Tim Curry's Pennywise is literally the only good thing about that original adaptation of it. Fight me. People at home, deal with it. Tim Curry is legitimately the only decent thing about that original interpretation of that source material. I love the book. So when I eventually got round to watching the Tim Curry version of the film, I was like, oh, Tim Curry's awesome, but there's so much that's not awesome about this film. 
and then in step the two-parter that we've had in recent years and you just go oh fuck yes that's fan service that's a Stephen King fanboy that loved the book it like very young he read that he said that he read that book probably a bit too young to have read it um, and it really spoke to him and you feel that every second that you watch of uh, this reimagining of this story it's palpable how much he cares about the characters and how invested he is and how real they are to him and you get this story delivered to you in another in a new way that feels familiar but it gives you a lot more than you were expecting because you've you've had it one way and everybody was like oh but tim curry don't want to don't want to tread on his toes he is pennywise he's awesome He's historically fucking awesome at this character. And then you've got Bill Skarsgård just fucking destroying the world as Pennywise. Like he is a deeply charming and charismatic man. And because he's deeply charming and char charismatic, when he's sinister and evil, it's more terrifying. The way he can manipulate his face and the way he enunciates certain words and the way he grimaces and the, the roving eye, just everything about the way he embodies that character and that's got a lot to do with the director being extraordinary and getting that out of his actors that remake so to speak does exactly what a good remake should that deserves to exist that needed to exist that's what all of the constant readers have always craved as a cinematic interpretation of that source material and as good as the original film slash super long tv series was the remake of that film in the last few years, like over that two parts, was just a gift that kept on giving. And that's why you, that's that's how you do it, guys. Directors and movie makers all over the world, that's how you do a fucking remake. You deliver something better than you got the first time when you thought what you got the first time was pretty decent. You dig deep, you go balls to the wall and you fucking deliver. That's how you do it. Yeah, I agree. And... Um just to point out, yeah, and done my didn't realise it was a remake or my favourite one, but carry on. So, what would your favourite be then, and the one you didn't realise? Yeah, my favourite remake ever, and this will probably fall into some people's categories of not realising it was a remake. Now, my favourite remake ever is Airplane, with uh, Leslie Nielsen. And it is a remake because it's a remake of the uh, 1950s film Zero Hour. It is an almost shot for shot remake. They just change uh, 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 what's going on. You know, uh, passengers are real and they've got to land the plane. But then uh, a war pilot has to take over. It's almost shot for shot, but it's done as a comedy. It's done as a, a comedy, you know, parody instead. And for me, that's what... Uh, uh, that's what you know a remake should do it brings a new perspective on it or it brings it changes something you know something it adds something or changes something and airplane basically taking a relatively unknown 1950s airplane for you know disaster plane film uh, in zero hour um and going you know what let's just make this let's just have a laugh let's just make this funny let's just throw in a, a just constant jokes and the jokes in it are, are, are still you will still make anyone today laugh that and it that's how <laughs> how funny this uh that film is and for me oh, one i didn't realize was a, a remake until quite recently it was um friday the 13th 
and it is technically technically a remake of uh, now is it of an Ita- a an Italian film uh, called it's either Torso or Twitch of the Death Nerve I can't remember which one but yeah it's a, a remake and in as much as they've basically they've taken the same premise single unknown killer who you think it's one person then it's not and they have the same you know death scenes you know the uh arrow you know through the neck or two people having sex and the thing goes straight through them you know it's it is uh a rumor i didn't realize i was watching through and i was like oh yeah the scenes are basically the same they basically just oh, that's so that was interesting and that took me through to film you know did what um a good remake actually should which is take you back to the original and open you to an area you didn't realize well what about you strong Strong i think for me i think for me the obvious choice for the best remake is dread dread is absolutely flawless and did everything the first film never did which made it engaging and enjoyable and everything that dread should have been from day one the first Dread film, as much as I love Stallone, is, forgive the phrase, but it's a fucking abortion. It should never have happened. It was, how do you take a guy who never takes his helmet off and have most of the first film having him without the fucking helmet on? It just ruined what Dread was. Worst remake, Bewitched. It was fucking diabolical. I tried 14 times to watch Bewitched, the Will Ferrell movie with Nicole Kidman. And, oh my God, it was awful. They remade the the, the 60s sitcom. Yeah, Yeah. into a film with Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman. Oh, I didn't even know they did that. Yeah, the film is quite meta because Will Ferrell is like a, a failing actor trying to reboot the TV series and hires a real witch who is Nicole Kidman to play the witch in Bewitched. 14 times I tried to watch that film. 14. It does sound like a dumpster fire because if you try and go... A lot of the time, if you try and go meta with it and try and sort of point out... The problem with meta films sometimes is if you point out why your film is crap people to start listening mm. that's the worry yeah that's why you've got to be careful when doing that you, what you've got to do with meta things is is point out why it's funny not why it's crap and like, there's a fine line between it and it sounds like this one just went oh this isn't very good is it well no it's not thanks for warning me i'll go now like a meta remake a great example is the kevin smith uh, jane silent bob reboot that is a prime example of how to do a meta remake mostly the same plot some parts are shot for shot and that's just him taking the piss out of the whole scenario but yeah jesus christ i'm, I'm actually quite angry now just thinking about bewitched i'm just going to shut my mouth before i start ranting sorry sean you have to carry on thinking about bewitched because i have a burning question it's eating me up on the inside why the fuck did you try and watch the film 14 times because I quite like Will Ferrell, mate. And I just thought, if you got Will Ferrell in, it should be good. And I never finished it. Like, it, I, oh, no, I'm, I've, no, I've got to shut up. I understand dedication Dude, I to an actor. 
three, that was far too much effort involved. After after three, it can get in the sea. <laughs> yeah, I understand dedication to an actor or artist or whatever. Fourteen times seems excessive. Maybe deep down you secretly like the movie and just don't want to admit it. No, I fucking hate the film, mate. It's absolutely fuck. Oh no, it's just awful. But what I'd do is I'd get in and be like, "Oh, I still haven't watched it. I'll put it on again." Put it on in bed and fall asleep watching it because it was just so non-engaging. Nothing happened and it was worth watching. So after the two weeks of trying to watch it, I put something else on and watched it the first night. But I forget where I watched it and what the first night. Oh, yeah, bewitched. Just never watch it. If you want to find out what it's about, watch the fucking trailer or read the Wikipedia page. Jesus Christ, no. What about a film you didn't realise was a... Remake. Uh, film I didn't realise was a remake. Ooh. Good question. Longest Yard. The Adam Sandler one. Didn't realise that was a, a, a remake until some years later when I actually looked into films. I forgot about that film's existence. I love that film. It was when Adam Sandler still did good films. Pre-click. Click is the definitive cut-off point for Adam Sandler. Anything click or before is fine. It's enjoyable. Anything post-click is absolute dumpster fire. Fire. Yeah, it was uh, Chris, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, and I think Goldberg's in it as well. I think we have shown uh, between us all, though, that we've all got the same idea of what a remake sort of should be should uh, you know it's art it's subjective but what we feel a remake should be and you know it needs to be different in some way it needs to add on it needs to expand or it needs to it needs to do something different and unique rather than just a copy paste because if it's a copy paste it's like what was the point kimbo is this how you segue into the kings of copy and paste as we enter the wonderful realm of Disney remakes. It wasn't, but it can be now. <laughs> it is the most glorious transition. Because, let's be honest, ladies and gents, guys and girls of all ages, we've all been dragged up through Disney. And Disney have delivered more often than not when we were younger. However, in recent years, Disney appeared to have gone you know this thing that made us a lot of money? How can we make that money with that same thing? This is kind of how, this is my interpretation. Listeners at home, fight me. Um, <laughs> but it does just feel like there's been this wave of the Disney live action remake in inverted commas. And some of them felt like complete gifts. Some of them we got really excited about. And some of them, you do a little Labrador head tilt and go, why? So we're about to get on the crazy train of Disney remakes and ultimately decide between the four of us, should they exist? Do they actually serve a purpose? Before I move us on, Kimbo, what you got to add? I just want to provide some clarity for the listeners at home. Hi, guys. So... By plethora of Disney remakes, we are actually covering 12 Disney remakes. 
12. We haven't even gone all the way back because we could have done the Dalmatians, but we, we, we made a cut-off point. Anything from 2010 onwards, live-action remake. So since 2010, 10 years, 12 remakes. Yeah, that's literally more than one a year. That's more than is necessary. And one of those years was the year of our Lord 2020. Blessed be us. Yeah, COVID year, when nothing was supposed to happen, they still managed to pump one out. All hail Disney. Phrasing. So where are we starting, Natalie? Well, we thought we'd ease in gently before it descends into, but why? So we'd start on a high, potentially. I feel like if I read the room correctly, this would be starting on a high. Um, basically, we, we were weighing up the, uh, the, as close to the original version of the animated film that we were delivered and the subsequent live-action remake. Please feel the air quotes while you're listening at home, guys. Live-action remake. Because sometimes the use of the word live action in that remake has been stretched a little bit. Because I'm sorry, guys, at Disney, but CGI is animation. It's not live action. Lies. But we'll get to that in later episodes. But we're starting off soft. Something not overly offensive in terms of a live action remake from the House of Mouse. The original animated film is how dear in a lot of people's hearts was never particularly fond of it live action remake of alice in wonderland where do we all stand guys did you like the animated version what did you feel about the remake and then the subsequent sequelized part of the live action remake so i didn't like the cartoon i thought it was a little bit out there but I really like the live action one. I feel like it's Tim Burton's last good film. Like, I don't think he's made anything better since 2010. Sorry, Tim Burton fans. Um, and it also has all Tim Burton's favourites in it. Johnny Depp does a sterling job as the Mad Hatter, who was really just Captain Jack Sparrow with less rum and a different accent. Um, Helen Burton Carter as the Queen of Hearts is great. Um, the girl who plays Alice is quirky. I have nothing more positive to say about her other than she is quirky. Possibly the weakest casting in the film. I really like Matt Lucas as Humpty Dumpty, and I don't feel he gets enough credit. He's the Tweedles. By Humpty Dumpty, I really like Matt Lucas as the Tweedles, <laughs> and I feel he doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> smooth, smooth save. Nice save. Nice save. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't get he doesn't get enough credit for playing Humpty Dumpty because he didn't play Humpty Dumpty. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, Kimbo's going through the credits, getting really angry. Humpty Dumpty. It says he is played by someone else. No, no. He should have played Humpty Dumpty in Shrek. The one with Humpty Dumpty in it. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit torn on the Alice in Wonderland remake. So I, I really liked the original animation, animated one. I'm 
one of the weirdos that loved it because um, I, I do love how absolutely batshit it is and how weird it is but then and how it sort of stuck to that sort of um oh this is oh was it lewis carroll that did the oh, i can i always get com- it was yeah I always get the names confused sometimes story and the disney animated version of alice is based heavily on the John Tenniel drawings for the original book. Mm. The way there that Alice's version is very much the template of the Tenniel drawings. Okay, so yeah, but as a thank, thank you. <laughs> so as I was saying with the that, and it felt very much like it was ripped from Lewis Carroll. The weirdness, the way the the characters spoke, the way the characters acted, I, I quite like that. But we're talking about the remake. On anyway, I quite. I'm split between this one because I like, I do actually sort of enjoy the film. I enjoy where it went. I enjoy the fact that it did take a much sort of darker tone to it and sort of really played on the madness rather than the mania, if you see what I mean. Because, um, you know, this uh, the bit with the um, Jabberwocky coming in instead of it just being a passing poem as it was in the in the book they actually create you know had the jabberwock in did the whole thing with it i i quite liked how they took it but it, i just can't get over the fact that they've basically sat on a throne of lies and said right we're calling it's alice in wonderland and you get to the end of the film and you realize that every single word in that title is a lie it's not alice it's not in, it's return, and it's not Wonderland, it's Underland. So it's not Alice returns to Underland. So the entire title is a lie. I'm sandwiching Johnson's negativity with some more positivity because I like this film. Um, I really like the hair who hangs around with the Mad Hatter. He's more mm-hmm. funny than Mad Hatter because, honestly, he just reminds me of Strawn when drunk. But I can imagine <laughs> Strawn being that hair. Strong male for the listeners, sorry. Mm. Like, spin! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. I, as I said, I'm split on it because I do actually, I, as I said, as I did say, I went through it and I actually enjoyed the film and I loved it and I loved the fact that, as I say, they took it down a darker turn. And yeah, you're right. The, the scene with the Mad Hatter and uh, the March Hare was brilliant. Just what just just watching them was absolutely brilliant but again there was just bits where I just I sort of throughout it I was just like well I'm not too keen on what you've what you've done here and but then it's one of those ones where oh you've merged this character with this character but then I can't really get annoyed at that film for doing it when the Disney original did it and other films have done the same you know they can't add every single character in and so on so i'm in that sort of torn bit where i can't some of the things i'm annoyed about it i really shouldn't be but i am and so i'm a bit sort of uh, it was enjoyable i really did like watching it and i'll pro and i will watch it again you know i I will go back to it but yeah just some things were just a bit i don't know sort of a, a Bit of a, a bit of a swing and a miss for me, but overall, 
overall i'm actually happy overall when it comes to it i'm happy with the outcome and yeah i really like the bits there in wonderland i think the real world based bits are really dull and take me out of the film that is where i will leave and let other people talk now because i've spread my opinion over multiple people I um, I understand what you mean about the real world bits that kind of take you out of it. But for me, that felt like um, intentional, like a device, because it illustrates Alice's perception of her actual reality in juxtaposition with this fantasy world that she escapes to. That she, her real life is tedious and she feels lost without her father there and she wants to explore and she wants to do this and she wants to do that and she's a girl and she's not meant to do it she's meant to be pretty and just marry this boy from down the road and her real life is a monotonous boring droll thing that she struggles to get through every single day and it's only when she escapes to underland that she starts feeling free and starts feeling like herself and starts expressing herself in a way that she hasn't done before and the journey that she goes on through her experiences in Underland to the point where she has enough strength of character to face the Jabberwocky in armour wielding this sword. She's become the woman that her father knew she could be and that he was quite happy for her to become. But once you lose that patriarchal figure in the family in the era that this movie is set... Alice was never going to be able to do what she'd have got away with if Daddy had still been alive. And by the time you get to the end of the film and she's fought the Jabberwocky and she's winning and, you know, she's got, she's not, this is going to sound really pretentious, but I'm an ex-art student, so deal with it, people. Um, It felt to me like fighting the Jabberwocky was almost symbolic. Like she didn't just defeat the Jabberwocky, she defeated the version of herself in the real world that she was afraid of becoming she was afraid of becoming this girl that has to toe the line and she's never going to experience anything and she's always going to be in this world of beige where every day is just going to be the same and she's going to be expected to do the same things that all girls are meant to do and that's not who she was and then you see her in this blue coat on this ship with the butterfly flying near her at the end and you're just like yeah that's sort of she, she almost gets some sort of self-redemption by going slightly mad and like for for me that the animated film as much as that I for context as well like I'm a massive fan of the original source material I mean my whole final year at university my degree show was based around the tenial drawings from the book and based off snippets of text from the book I did a whole project based on elements of the original Alice stories I've got about seven different versions of that book in my house at the moment and that's because I've lost some when I was moving um so I'm I'm a massive fan of the original source material and the as much as a romp and as fun and as kind of out there as the original animated film for Disney was it never quite hit in the same way that the book did I didn't get the it, it felt more lunacy than struggling with potential insanity, which is a vibe that you get in the book. You feel like she's she's aware that she might be losing her mind. The book is a little bit darker in places, especially if you come back to it 
as a, a mature reader, if you go back and read that book now, you're going to get something very different than you did when you were a kid, because there's going to be lots of little nuanced bits of that story that you that went over your head because you were just too young to understand it and you've not lived enough. And then you read it again as a bit more of a jaded adult. You get a lot more from that original text. And so when they came to doing the remake, I was super excited because for me, like, it was much in the same kind of thing as when the It remake got um, the first rumours of that came out. When the first rumours of Tim Burton is doing Alice, I basically just slid off my chair. I was so excited because not only is Alice getting remade and this might potentially be a better representation than the original Disney version. Because Disney, Disney have a habit of taking excellent nuanced dark stories and slapping uh, animal sidekicks and jolly songs and getting rid of all the blood and guts and dirt and drudgery and leaving you with this shiny and everybody lived happily ever after and the boy came in and saved the girl and they all lived in a happy little castle and you lose some like it's like the little mermaid the disney version of that film as fun as it is to have a caribbean crab singing under the sea at you if you read the original book, it's fucking dark as shit. It's horrible. I remember reading a part of that from my, uh, I got bought. There is, this is a tangent. I will get back on point. But I got bought the uh, a collection of fairy tales and, and Little Mermaid was in it. I remember reading that and I think I must have only been about nine, which would have placed my sister at about six. And she asked me to read to her what I was reading. And I got to the point in the original version of The Little Mermaid where the Little Mermaid is about to lose her voice. And in the film, this is all very exciting. You've got a big plump, you know, octopus witch that's singing and this light orb comes down and gets ripped out of throat and her legs get split and it's all very magical and kind of beautiful. In the book, the sea witch cuts the mermaid's tongue out of her mouth and her, her fin splits to the point where she's in constant pain and walking on her human feet gives her constant pain I remember reading this paragraph where and and she cuts out the mermaid's tongue and my sister just going very white and then my sister grasped me up to my mom <laughs> and then I got bollocking um for reading this part of this book to my sister and I was just like this is the first time I was reading this story it was the little mermaid I've seen this film so many times how was I meant to know that was coming you bought me this book this is bad parenting um but that's by the by but like the point I'm making is Disney have a track record and a very ingrained history of Disneyfying dark fairy tales. And sometimes what makes that fairy tale stand the test of time to start with is the fact it was a little bit dark. It had a little bit of grit in there. It was something that made you feel a little bit unsettled. And I think that Tim Burton taking the helm with the Alice remake, immediately all of the light bulbs were going off in my head, like this is gonna be glorious. I'm gonna get some of that feeling of unstable insanity that you get in undertones in the original text. And then I watched it and was like, you know what? It's not, it's not um, necessarily the best representation of the source material. Liberties are taken. I will be the first to, uh, you know, admit that. I'm not saying it's a good adaptation of the source material, but I think side by side, if you take the animated version of Disney's film of that story and the Tim Burton live action remake version for Disney of that story, the Tim Burton one is way more nuanced, way more interesting, a lot darker. 
and just has a little bit more grit and then you care a little bit more. The animated version of Alice I thought was a whiny little brat. I still to this day think she's a whiny little brat. You can't read that book, it's got no pictures in it. Okie dokie, that's absolutely fine, you vacuous little shit. But like, you know, the live action remake of it, you actually care that she doesn't feel stable. You care that she doesn't think she's got the strength in her to fight this monster. You're concerned about her facing off with the Queen of Hearts, because the Queen of Hearts, Helena Bone Carter's Queen of Hearts, was absolutely, I know it's Tim Burton, so he was naturally going to pick her, but that was fucking exquisite. Like, if you're going to put your missus in a role in any of your movies, he always picks really well. He never just slips, slips her into, like, the wrong role. He always makes sure that she's in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. And Helena Bone Carter is the, the Red Queen, even down to the accent, like, the, the way she uses her voice in that film. She sounds farcical but you're kind of terrified of her. And she's got such a lot of strength of character and will and determination that even this, you know, Napoleon complexed bitch of a queen that hasn't got enough brain cells to rub together to start, you know, a bit of smoke going, let alone a fire, Mm. is genuinely an actual threat to this very intelligent young woman. And Alice doesn't believe she's going to beat her. And I think you end up, by the time you get to the end of the live action remake, you feel like you've got something out of it. You've you've enjoyed a journey with these characters. The Mad Hatter is way more interesting because he's so damaged. He's not just this very loud cartoon version of a Mad Hatter. There's a reason he's mad. And he has these moments where, you know, he's he's there and he's he's completely there. He's alert and he's sentient and he's not mad. He has these moments of lucidity, which makes it when Johnny Depp goes back into being mad, your heart breaks a little bit. Tim Burton managed to make completely ludicrous and insane characters feel human. You care. And so, like, as much as it might not be the best interpretation of the story, when you put those two Disney films side by side, that remake deserved to happen. It served a purpose. And I stand by that it is the better version of that film by Disney. It far outstretched the original interpretation by Disney. I agree with everything other than one point, and that's Alice. That actress was wooden and bored. Throughout the whole thing, she she had this look on her face of, I'm in this amazing environment. Ah, oh, that's odd. Oh, I don't want to do this. Oh, la, la, la. She, she was so wooden and unresponsive. It was actually weird. I agree with your take of her, of the character that she was portraying, which was, she was, yeah, she wasn't just a whiny little brat like she was in the whisper oh i don't want to read this falls into a pit and then she comes out and hasn't learned anything whereas this one was oh i'm not sure i actually want this life she goes into under underland learn you know has an adventure finds her courage defeats 
you know, the met defeats the metaphor and comes out stronger for it because she does turn around in public and say, sorry, I can't. Sorry, I don't want not that I can't marry you. I don't want to marry you, which is an important distinction that she, it's not it's not her going, oh, Tuesday, it's I don't want to marry you. Thus showing everyone she's got a brain and she's got this. All I would say is change the actress. Because sometimes that didn't come across. You're like, I know what you're trying to write, Burton. Your writing is the good bit. Her acting is not. She's she was so wooden and and she seemed bored in parts. And I was like, you're in Underland. You're in a twisted version of a twisted story, and you're looking bored. You know, there's a there's the bit where she she comes across she comes across the Queen's art. You know, the Queen of Hearts army, and the Jabberwocky lands, and Christopher Lee's voice comes out of it. So you know, awesome even more. And she just looks at it like, well, got to fight this. So a Jesus woman act. That's my only thing. So I agree with your summation of Alice's character in it. My only issue is with the actress playing it. I agree with everything Johnson has just said about the Alice actress. However, I am a little ray of sunshine and I am shining brightly upon Helen Bonham Carter. Every time we're going to talk about this woman, I am going to I'm going to I'm going to go for this because she, apart from one film which we'll talk about another day, she nails the part completely. It it's like Nat said, it's the vocal mannerisms, the com- when she's screaming off with the heads, in in the animated version that's like a <laughs> crazy queen, in this it's like holy fucking shit she's a psycho. While still being a, <laughs> she's a crazy queen. It's a different crazy. It's a comedic crazy at the same time as being a, I'm a little bit scared and aroused crazy. She's deeply unhinged. Like, and it's it's palpable. And like, even through all that exaggerated makeup and like the CG work they had to do to resize her head, even through all of that shit, her... Her ex- she's so expressive. Her the use of her body and her hands and her face and her voice, every single thing that that woman has, she utilises to its absolute maximum constantly. She's just a complete gift. I mean, she um, for listeners at home, um, we've, we've previously talked about kind of uh, reading books and whatnot. Um, Helena Bohm Carter, as an aside, for a great example of how extraordinary this woman is. She does the audible narration for Anne Frank's diary. And that was a book that I never studied at school. It was something that I never got round to. And there's like, there's three or four different versions of it out. And Audible um, got Helena Bohm Carter to narrate like the quintessential, like all of the stuff that daddy originally cut out because it was either offensive to the people in the room or it touched upon and talking about her sexuality and her feelings and her, you know, having a period, all that stuff that got cut by her father originally because it was deemed kind of inappropriate or a bit taboo, all got put back in. And she does the reading for this. And, you know, she's not she's not a young, she's not in her 20s anymore. And Anne Frank was a young teen when she wrote this diary. And the way that she narrates this, I was in tears. There's, there's parts, and because you're going into this book, 
you know what happens with Anne Frank. You know that there is no happy ending at the end of this diary. You know that that diary never gets fully, fully written. Like, and you, there's these whole passages where Anne's talking about her plans for the future. And she's talking about this boy. And, you know, she's going to be a journalist and she's going to do this and she's going to do that. And when she's angry uh, with the people that they're sharing the room with, um, it, she never delivers anything as a petulant child. She delivers everything with the care and affection of being able to remember how it felt to be that conflicted at that age. And you know that in your heart at that age, you know that you feel like you mean it and that you know what you mean and that you know everything. Because you do, because you're a teenager and the world is your oyster and you feel like these feelings that you have, they might be fresh and new, but you're you're owning them and you're in control of them and you mean everything you say and you deliver it with complete authority and without any sort of kind of hesitation or feeling like you need to explain yourself. And she delivers all of this with, with heart and soul and gravity and not a hint of petulance or an indication of kind of looking down on her in any way or being patronising in any way. She delivers every single line of this diary reading with such heart and soul that if you've ever read it or if you haven't read it, you need to listen to this audible version of that Anne Frank's diary because I defy you not to get to the end of that book and have completely dry eyes. The woman's extraordinary. And she can do something like that where it's so intense and so emotional and you don't even see it, but you can feel kind of this inner turmoil. You can, you can feel it just through her voice. And then you give her the platform of something like Alice where, you know, she can go to town because she's literally a caricature. Her head is upscaled beyond all reason in that film. And she's this tiny diminutive little woman with this enormous head and this ridiculous makeup. And she's got her body and her face at her disposal as well as the delivery. And that woman, you know, she can make you feel stuff just with her voice. You you get to watch her and you're on another level and you get to watch her play a cartoon, which is basically what that version of the Queen of Hearts is. That Red Queen is just an enormous caricature of that character. And yet it isn't trivial in any way you're not like it's not just a throwaway character and it's not it actually like in the, I remember watching the original animated film for the first time again um a few years back and it had been a while and you know that the Red Queen matters you know that she's important and you know that she's completely off her head excuse the pun but you don't care she's an awful villain in the animated version of that film. She's a shit villain. You don't care. She doesn't seem actually very dangerous. She just seems like an oversized toddler having a strop repeatedly throughout the periods of the film that she's in. She potentially is gonna lose a game of croquet, so she has a strop. Somebody ate a tart, so she has a strop. But the animated version of the Red Queen has none of the genuinely sinister aspects that are in the book. And then you get Helena Bohm Carter take it on. And it's it's exactly what you were saying, Kimbo. You, she's still kind of a laughable, like, oh, my God, what an extremely outlandish caricature of a woman this is. But in your heart of heart, you're shitting it because she's, she's sinister. And she's clearly literally insane. She's completely unhinged. 
and to be able to find the balance between being terrifying and unhinged and yet a cartoonish Disney villain. That's fucking like we all hail Helena Bone Carter. She's a fucking legend. Well done, Tim. Your muscles is awesome. I mean, it, it wasn't that awesome. She left, but... Yeah. <laughs> but I you forget. know who I hail? I hail Strawn Male and his very silent opinions. Take the floor. Christ, you guys can fucking talk. Jesus, wept. And out of all that, you still said one thing that wasn't fucking great about it. Stephen Fry is a Cheshire cat. You fucking heathens. <laughs> I mentioned Christopher Lee. Piss off. Kimbo. Alan Rickman. Alan we Rickman. didn't talk about the, how excellent the cast is in general. Yeah, Alan Crispin Rickman. Glover. Who? Who, Dave? Oh. <laughs> Crispin. Right. He was the. Um... I can't remember what his character was in this one, but he's the right, he's the one-eyed right-hand man of the Queen. Oh, okay, he's, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, he's no, a very, okay. very good actor. Is one of my personal favourites because he's awesome. But yeah. But well, my point is, if we went about everyone in the cast, we'd be here all day because everyone in Underworld is excellent. Everyone in the Human World sucks dick, and can fuck off because they're a waste of the film. Everyone in Underworld, every casting decision made in Underworld, from Matt Lucas and Tweedledee and Tweedledum to Helen Burnham Carter. The, I say every. I'm I love Anne Hathaway. And I'm, I'm I'm sorry if you hear this. You weren't really needed as the White Queen. <laughs> you weren't. It could have literally been anybody. You. You added zero to the film. It's not your fault. The White Queen is a lame role. But what what really got me? I think this is one of the things where I, uh, the issues I had is they had the Queen of Hearts against the White Queen. Like, uh, 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 wrong books, mate. Wrong books. Queen of Hearts should sh- does not interact with the White Queen. The White Queen interacts with the Red Queen. In through the looking glass, wrong films. That's the only, that's for me was the thing. I was just like, well, if she's the White Queen, then shouldn't Helena Bonham Carter be the Red Queen, not the Queen of Hearts? Because they're very different characters. Because uh, Wonderland and the Looking Glass are very different places. But they got combined into one character. Yeah. That's strong, male. Fucking, I'll get one fucking sentence and you carry on again. Jesus Christ, you guys. This is why I do all the fucking editing. Um, yeah, I think, you, again, I can't really add much more to what you've said because you fucking nailed every point. Like, I agree with Alice as the actress wasn't for me. Um, but the portrayal, like, the, how they portrayed the character was amazing. Um, casting, again, was phenomenal. The only thing I am really thankful for, and this is a really personal thing, is that I'm thankful I didn't see it when I was younger. Because I would have been scared shitless of the Jabberwocky. I'd have lost many a night of sleep from a massive wuss. And I actually walked out there still questioning whether or not I'd lose sleep at 
the age, so we're okay, 2010. Yeah, I was 20, and I've still probably lost sleep. And that's all I've got to say on the matter. I'll let you guys carry on. I, I love how none of us have even bothered mentioning the follow-up to Alice. Shall we just collectively go, we don't talk about that one. It's like the other Spider-Man film, and, you know, mm. it, it goes in a draw with films that don't exist. For, uh, for me, it was just pointless. The film was boring. I, I literally came out of the film and went, what was the point in that? It wasn't terrible. It was because it it was that unimpressive that it didn't generate anything in me. Because if it was a bad film, I'd have tons to talk about because I'd tear it to shreds. But I just came out and went, that was pointless, boring. And, you know, it's one of those ones where you forget about it. Oh, yeah, they did do a sequel, didn't they? Yeah, it's pretty dull. That's why, for me, it'll go in a, you know, in the drawer with the ones we don't talk about, because I'll forget. I've got nothing to talk about it. Oh, that was dull. It was boring. It was pointless. I have points. None are positive. Negative point number one. They have taken one of the best characters from the original, Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow, Mad Hatter, combination and he is now boring and sad lame Alice is still the same modern actress as the first Alice lame they cast Sasha Baron Cohen as a serious character he had no comedy he is a comedian why is he this role lame the the red queen queen of heart why her head is so big story Lame. The redeeming factors in Alice Through the Looking Glass are in negatives. Negatives. If the first one had every damn right to be made and should exist, and is, and is, for me, the version of the film I would tell people to watch, Alice Through the Looking Glass deserves to be put in a fire, set on fire, then put out, then relit, then thrown in the sea. It is that bad. I actively think I've I've looked down my list of twelve. Bear in mind I've still not seen two of them. I think it's the worst one. I don't think I have I think I have something positive about every other one. Nothing. Zero. It was that boring for me. I watched it in three D and thanks to my lazy eyes, I didn't have to watch the rest of it after the first ten minutes because my eyes gave up. So I enjoyed just watching a blur. I love, and that's how I, I think it should have been. That has to be that has to be what is the primary review of this film. It's so boring. My eyes gave up. Well, I can't watch three D films because I've got too lazy eyes. So after the first ten minutes, my eyes just give up trying to focus on everything. Yeah, but I just love it as a quote, though, yeah. as a thing. It was so boring, my eyes gave up. I enjoyed it more, watching blurs for however the fuck long it is after the first ten minutes. Yeah. Get it in the sea. Don't make nearly, any more. Nearly two hours. The film is nearly two hours long. Yeah. I was I'd... in an uncomfortable cinema chair for nearly two hours, and Sasha Baron Cohen didn't make one damn joke. Uh, there's several bits where I thought, oh, this is going to get interesting, and then it didn't. Like the bit where 
um, she wakes up and she's in a mental institute. And you think, wow, that's a direction to take it. And, you know, the doctor's giving her a thing. Oh, you're just a hysterical woman. A mother's there going, this is the best for you. And you're like, okay, that's a direction. Oh, let's see where this goes. And she's broken out and gone back into Wonderland. Bang, and killed it. And never referenced it again. That was the premise for the PlayStation game that they were going to make the movie from. And it never happened. And that's what made me even more angry. For me, there were there were parts of like on reflection, I don't really remember a lot of the second film. I didn't hate it. It's not memorable by any stretch of the imagination. I didn't mind Sasha Baron Cohen not being a comedic role. I think he was for, for the the part that he played, he's a very solid actor. He played the part very well. It was just not a particularly interesting role in not a particularly interesting film, which I feel is unfortunate because it was clearly trying to show that he is more than just a comedic actor he's got you know stones like but it was a lackluster film a lot of the characters were lackluster and so it wasn't very memorable there were but going back to the point that johnson was just making there there were interesting elements and for a second he got excited and then like if i think back on it now i just have that south park right and that and it's gone it's that like you were just like oh 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 and it's gone and it's just and it was just gone like you, you had these little these little nuggets like dangled in front of your face like this could be good this could be good and it's gone and then the film was over and you just went oh okay well I'm not getting that time back <sighs> am i angry that i watched it no will i ever watch it again no do i think it's an awful film awful is a strong word I'm ambivalent about it at best. I think it probably still has some points in it that are arguably better than the original animated version of the first Alice. I think if you put those two side by side, the live action remake still wins. But only just by technical decision. Um, Yeah, it was just, I'm going to just pretend that one didn't happen because it didn't deliver quite what I wanted. I was hoping when they were doing the kind of the the through the looking glass, I was hoping there'd be a, a really trippy floating chessboard scene like from the book and I didn't get it. And so I was just really bitter because I wanted a really like somebody just dropped a tab. Everybody's an actual chess piece floating through space moment and I didn't get it. But I got, you know. <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen with clocks so yeah that's it's okay it's fine i remember nothing other than that i there's like there's a room full of pocket watches and alice looks very unimpressed and becomes institutionalized and escapes that's it that's all i remember i remember nothing else from the film because it was just it wasn't the best but you've got quite a lot of very interesting source material um and again don't get me wrong i'm not completely like rose tinted with these books the books not all of it's good there's quite a lot of parts of the book where you're just going what and i I understand that it's a kind of a a very unusual story like it's not a, a standard linear and then and then and then type of story it never was 
but even in the original books this point where like you you can stretch your disbelief to a certain degree and then you're just reading paragraphs going i've no idea what's going on Qua. but even like if you take all of the less good bits of the original source material out why they didn't include any of the good stuff they didn't use in the first film and the second film makes my brain itch a little bit but you know i don't hate it it's not a bad film i'd just rather not have a very long conversation about it <laughs> so i'm still dragging this segment out because i'm really frustrated and i need to get some words off my chest right we're not addressing the biggest elephant in the room. The fucking stupid Red Queen story why her head becomes larger and why it becomes larger and it's technically the White Queen's fault and they keep travelling back through time to try and fucking fix it and none of it ever makes sense and it really, 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 really pissed me off. I can't, I can't get over it. I've held this in since 20... 2016. Four years I've been waiting to get this rant over with. Why? Why are we making the White Queen, played by Anne Hathaway, who's like this glowing pale goddess, and now she's the villain because she cracked her sister's head open? Ugh, I'm so irritated. This is like when Strom was talking about Bewitched, I now fully, like, I'm on his side. Why? Just, just, just why? Why, why, why would you hire Johnny Depp and then go, what you're going to do is be depressed for a whole two hours? Yeah, fucking great. That's what I want from Johnny Depp. I don't want him to do batshit crazy, hoity-toity things. No, no, I want him to sit in a room and be a sad hatter. Fucking dumb. I'm out. I love that. He, he's not the mad hatter in that one. He's the sad hatter. Well done. And I, and I think with that vitriolic spewing from Kimbo's corner there, I think that about wraps this up then. I think you might have a point there, Johnson. So, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening again today. This series might not be one episode, as you may have guessed. We will be uh, coming back to Disney remakes at a later date. We've got... Um, 12 movies in all will be breaking that down into segments and delivering them to you over the course of many weeks interspliced with other shit so you don't get completely bored senseless but in the meantime let us know what you think about this have you got any strong opinions about what we've spoken about so far what do you think the other movies we're going to be discussing are going to be and what do you think we should be doing moving forward get in touch Email address is, as always, trainpopculture at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr, trainpopculture. And Twitter is culture underscore train. And now, that will be it for the evening. So. Skull. Frost. Slangy bar. Tea.